Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom. Today's guest name is Stuart Sorkin. Stuart and I rallied back and forth on a lot of different things, and it stems from his major experience over the last 30 years in M&A and his credentials and the book that he wrote. So he's got his JD, LLM, and CPA, so he comes at this topic from a lot of different angles. He wrote the book with a gentleman named Dick called Expensive Mistakes, which I'll tell you what, I really wish I would have read prior to us selling our company. So we take a couple of the top mistakes that entrepreneurs make while they're selling or packaging up their business to sell. And then we dive into some really, really cool topics like due diligence and all the different parts of due diligence that are important, ways that you can actually become an absentee owner and how being an absentee owner will actually give you more money on the actual sale of your company. And we talk about how your corporate structure, estate planning, tax planning, financial planning are all intertwined and looking at your structure in one big picture. In the show notes, I included links to Stuart's book, and then I also included a due diligence checklist that shows you the span of topics that are covered based on the conversation that Stuart and I have. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Without further ado, here's my interview with Stuart. Good morning, Stuart. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Ryan? Doing really good. Uh, I'm super excited for today because I got your book in part of my soul searching after the uh, aftermath of us selling our company and your book is called Expensive Mistakes and I I want to, uh, for the listener's sake, if you can go back, you've got a, uh, many decades of experience in the M&A space but can you kind of give the general backdrop of your experience and what um, advice and uh what type of clients you normally work with? Sure. Um, well, I spent seven years in the what was formerly the Big Eight, now I guess the Big Four, uh, five of which in their national office where I started their tax application software group uh, and worked with early incarnations of the PC to do early spreadsheet analysis. Um, left there and spent the better part of two work, went to work for a large firm, uh, in DC and spent the better part in 1987, 88, spent the better part of two years, uh, buying bank, failing SNLs and banks down in Texas when, uh, the SNL crisis hit, um, that was probably my first major foray into it and then went to a boutique securities firm where I worked with small clients, small and mid-sized clients on capital raising, putting together business plans for financing, etc. 
then spent a chunk of time with a small, with a mid mid-sized firm doing mergers and acquisitions and estate planning. And uh, the intertwine between estate planning and business and sale of business is something that's commonly missed between people and have uh, met Dick Stiglitz, my co-author, uh, in a communicate men's communications group. And we decided to write the book basically as a give back to small and mid-sized companies who would not be exposed to uh, the issues that his experience and my experience over the last 30 years had uh, come together. Uh, and it was published initially in January of 2010, which is the first year that the baby boomers started hitting 65. Um, well, and I, I, uh, when I was reading it, and I was like, well, yep, I can relate because uh, the, most of the listeners may or may not know um, of my show that my dad and I, when we sold, there were some things that we could have done that would have saved us almost $1.6 million. Um, and I want to get into that because I think that touches in a couple of the different mistakes. And you've got like a total of 57 in this book. And, you know, when you – I want to go back to when you and Dick were starting to write this book. Did you start with how many mistakes you know that are possible? Or like where did the – you know, where did kind of the book come into fruition? I think the book came into fruition. Uh, we sat around a table for a while um and started thinking about the mistake the the main the what we viewed as segregating the book into five main areas which is from the seller side developing your business and getting it ready for the sale the buyer side on the same token then looking at a transaction from the buyer side and the seller side and finally the one that i think gets ignored significantly is the integration because closing is not necessarily success in a deal if you are an acquirer mm -hmm. the integration piece of, i've seen many deals fall apart for failure to integrate properly and then we started looking then we sort of put together uh started talking about common things that he and i had seen and you know we had probably more than the 57 but i think we tried to look at the ones that we thought would be most valuable to the small mid-sized business owners that were more on a practical side i think the book is tries to look at things from a practical perspective not just a legal accounting or business perspective but what are the practical considerations you need to look at well yeah and i and I, and I loved it and i wish i would have read it prior to us selling because i mean like you only do it once usually if you're a business owner and you know there are the serial entrepreneurs out there that'll continue to do it but you know for the general population of entrepreneurs that's their one big asset that they end up selling and they don't know the mistakes until afterwards like i like i alluded to in our situation um, so there's a couple that I, a couple of the mistakes that I want to highlight and kind of dive in uh, on your thoughts. But you know, before we even get into the narrow subjects of a specific mistake, you know, when you're working on the buy side, sell side with these entrepreneurs, is there a way that you can kind of summarize the main? problem or strategy or the lack of strategy in this whole situation? okay well you, you you've hit on the south side it's real easy it's lack of a plan <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's a failure to plan 
And that's where the integration comes in is the failure to plan one, what's your target? What's your real number? Most entrepreneurs have, uh, many entrepreneurs have an inflated view of the value of their business, but they also don't necessarily understand how that business integrates in their overall financial plan. So it's really key in my mind that you figure that out. And secondly is, what are you going to do when you do sell the business? I think that is probably um, an area where, because as an example with Dick, he knew he could not work, continue to work for the business after post because it was his baby and he knew himself well enough to know that he would only be frustrated watching someone else handling his baby going forward. So I think um, another major issue that, that this on the sell side is, can you stay with the company? Should you stay with the company uh, going forward? And if you're not staying with the company, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Because uh, I've seen some very bad situations come up that people just, you know, uh, don't really have a plan, a personal plan post acquisition. On the buy side, I think uh, overestimation of how quickly you're going to be able to integrate, failure to necessarily understand the cultural issues that you may have if you're acquiring it within, if the acquirer is going to then put it in with another, an existing business, the cultural issues are, are, are I've seen major disasters in that area. So those, those probably are the two mm -hmm. significant sets that I looked that I, that I would see. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on a, a couple big key points too, because it's just really, and I, it's just really having an awareness of all this and what what are the different variables, which I think you guys uh, spelled out pretty uh, in a lot of detail in your book. And you know the the first of the exit or the of the mistakes that I wanted to dive into, which we you kind of just touched on, which is the vague exit strategy. And you know you talked about and before I uh, we go into it, you, you had mentioned that you know can you stay with the business? Can you not? And I think the the vague exit strategy includes a lot of different things and so if you can kind of say when you say vague exit strategy is it timing the the, the exit options what do you mean when you when you do when you say that okay well vague exit strategy is one um have you are you if you're exiting are you going to be financially secure for the rest of your life and that is why the first thing, if I start working with a client um, before we're, before I get handed an LOI, which is not the way I would prefer to work, but if I actually can develop a plan, the first thing I want my client to, the client to do is to meet with a financial planner or their financial planner and run a Monte Carlo analysis. And for those who don't know what a Monte Carlo analysis is, it is a analysis that most brokerage houses can run that says, based on you providing them your income and expenses, they can tell you how much capital you need for the remainder of your life with a 90 to 95% certainty. Um, so the first question is, is to find out what the value 
you what you need to retire comfortably or to do the next deal or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Secondly is then you can then look and do a real value of the business. And one, then you can compare the two. If it's a positive delta, meaning that the value of your business exceeds what you need, then you can do a lot of sophisticated planning in, in the tax area with regard to transferring to subsequent generations and charitable remainder trusts and other types of vehicles where you can reduce the tax liability on the eventual sale. Uh, in one case, recently, I had a client who found out that he had a million positive delta, and his view was that instead of selling it to a third party where he would have gotten that million, he was more interested in allowing his management to buy it because he didn't. Need, they would have had trouble meeting his what he thought his number needed to be. When he found out his number was lower, he could then sell it to his employees and preserve the legacy that he wanted to preserve. So knowing what you need and then knowing what the true value of the business as a starting point is important, then we can look at, especially if we have time, how do we add value to the business? Have we, um, have we golden handcuffed the employees? Uh, and one of the things that I think that many people miss today when they talk about golden handcuffing of employees is that, yes, you want to golden handcuff the employees to grow the value of the business. That's, that's a wonderful thing. But if all of a sudden your top sales guy gets a big check the day of closing, what's the likelihood he is going to stay? <laughs> so the idea here is they're building a golden handcuff strategy that effectively creates a stay bonus mm-hmm. for the employee for your key employees. Because if you can deliver a, an intact management team for 12 to 24 months post acquisition, you will add anywhere from 25 to 100 basis points to your EBITDA multiplier. And so looking at how you can golden handcuff your employees uh, and how to make it a win-win for them. Looking at things like, are you, a, are you a mile wide and an inch deep, which would make your acquisition issues? Are you, lo- in, in my area in Washington, we have a lot of government contractors and in the government contracting range, do you have full and open contracts or are they, are they set-asides based on particular status that you have, which is going to affect the value of the business? So by looking at those things, then we can look at how we can increase the value of the business. Uh, I work on a simple philosophy of the business is like a three-legged stool. There's the accounting and finance, there's the sales and marketing, and there's product delivery. All entrepreneurs start <clears throat> by doing all three. The smart ones figure out what they're not as good at or what they're not as good at or what they don't wanna do, and they bring in either a key employee or partner to handle those things to prove to balance out the value of the business mm-hmm. so yeah. looking at those areas yeah and I, and I love how um, you touched on a couple of really good things about I think there's a, a constant challenge behind how do you actually structure the deals with key executives and how do you get them 
you know, just writing a, a you know, check is usually not aligning them with incentives and everything. And that that's part of, uh, so we follow the value builder system by John Warlow. I'm not sure if you're mm -hmm. familiar with that or not, but he's got the eight key drivers. And, you know, th this whole concept of value building, I think, is newer in the last few years because it's a conscious effort to increase, like you had said, that multiplier on your pre-tax or your EBITDA. And so if you've got a delta or uh, or even a positive delta, you've got an, the ability to increase the value of your company. And But then there's also ways that you can increase your net proceeds. So to kind of go back to when you were talking about how, that, how you structure everything where the net proceeds is what you're concerned about and cash flow. And so Correct. The, you've got the multiplier and the value of the company, which is your, you know, your gross dollar amount, but how that turns into your actual, you know, proceeds is, uh, is two different kind of things. So you, yes. you know, we, I don't know if you can, we can separate those and how you distinguish the two or the different things that you advise people on how to approach. Well, I, I think that there, there are probably a couple of different things. One of the things that I look at is the idea of of tying your employees in has to be a win-win. And in order to make it a win-win, you've got to make it that hopefully that the value of locking these key employees up in the company will increase your sales proceeds by more than what you're giving away to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people don't really necessarily look at how that plays in and that's why as i said the idea of saying okay i'm gonna you know you're i'm gonna sell the company and you're gonna have your stock options and you're gonna get ordinary income and nothing to lock you in post yes i you've helped me build the value of the business but you haven't necessarily added to your to your ebitda multiplier Mm -hmm. And the way to add to the EBA multiplier is, a, is, is the idea is that creating payouts as an, ex an example that I typically use would be that you might with LLCs or C-Corps, because you can have multiple classes of equity, you create a employee class equity, which has vesting valuation. Because equity in a private company is basically wallpaper until a change in control. Mm -hmm. So the idea of saying, of creating something that says, you actually own this equity, and but if you leave, you're only going to get bought out on a portion of it based on how long you've been there. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I think is key about why I like the equity piece Ryan, is the idea is that I don't believe in necessarily giving equity. I like the idea of saying to an employee, you're going to buy the equity out of after-tax bonuses that I'm going to pay you. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I want to do that is that this tell there are two types of employees in the world. There are those who are there for a paycheck, and there are those who want have some entrepreneurial spirit. And if someone is unwilling to forego the opportunity cost of the bonus uh, versus actually buying your equity, 
then they are probably not the right person in your management team because they're there for a paycheck, not to help you grow the business. Right. They see that paycheck as a, you know, a missing boat if they buy the equity. <laughs> exactly. But if they're not, and, and therefore, so that, so it's a way to test, but then saying to them, well, with this equity class, you're going to get 10 or 15% of that as a capital gain rather than ordinary income. So the point is that I'm also by having you buy this, I'm saving you 20% or more in taxes when you sell, when you sell the company. Yep. When I sell the company, the employer the employee now doesn't have ordinary income, they get capital gains. So in exchange for that, it says you're going to get 10, 10, 15, 20% of closing. You're going to get, let's say, 50 or 60% at the earlier of one year after acquisition or 30 days after constructive termination. So if they mess around and try to transfer you, if they take, try to cut your salary, you get paid. But, as, but the employee is long, basically it says as long as the new acquirer comes in and doesn't mess with your compensation or your duties, et cetera, you're going to stay a year. Now, the last piece of this is, is something else that people, in my opinion, tend to miss. And that is I put a portion to a funded covenant not to compete. Because a covenant not to compete is a license to sue. It is not anything else. But if all of a sudden I'm saying that this, the dovetail portion of 10 or 20 percent is going to be paid out on a monthly basis starting in month 13 after acquisition, as long as you don't compete. But if you do compete, the money say, it gets paid into escrow and the employee has a choice of saying, I'm going to forfeit it because I am competing or suing and saying, no, I'm not competing. And since the agreement provides prevailing parties gets their fees paid, it keeps both sides honest, but you've also now delivered and locked up your management team for the acquirer for two years, mm -hmm. which will maximize, which I believe will significantly maximize your multiplier when someone comes in. It's because it, it you know, I, like the word transferable value. It's how easy with less with the least amount of risk can someone come in and take over your operations. And the the reason that someone's willing to give more money or you know more basis points is because there's less risk that all of the top people in the company are just going to walk away because there's usually going to be impact to profit if they do. And and Ryan, the other point is is this by locking up your employees before you're in an acquisition mode, you also increase the likelihood of success. And because as you're probably aware, probably close to 60% of the deals that go to LOI do not close. And a percentage of those deals are that you haven't locked up your key employees, the acquirer wants this key employee, and the key employee now knows he's got you over the barrel. Mm -hmm and either interposes themselves in the negotiations, which could have negative consequences, or wants more money, or says, if I don't get, I'm leaving, and they can't, you can't lock that person in, the acquisition fails. So by locking up your key employees prior to starting the actual exit, you've, you increase your likelihood of success as well, of closing, as well as uh, increasing the per the potential net proceeds mm -hmm. and 
one other point I will make is that the if you look at these quote bonuses that are being paid out to buy the equity, they're really advantage to the owner because what happens is most of these employees are in a lower tax bracket. So if you bonus out to them money and you say, okay, everything after the tax number goes back to pay for the stock. Well, the payment of the stock, if it's issued by the company, is a non-taxable transaction. So therefore, the, employee, the, the CEO owner is maybe reducing his compensation, but he then, by the amount of these bonuses, but he then gets back a larger after-tax amount, which can be distributed to them in the form of a dividend. Yeah. Which is so you reduce you reduce your the so during this period of time you can reduce the 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 note is outstanding you can reduce you can actually increase the owner's cash flow. Interesting, I like it. So you you know with the sixty percent that fail that of the deals that go which by the way that I mean that that's an astronomical amount and I, I wouldn't be surprised that it continues to go up with the amount of uh, companies that are going to market over the the next few years but other than some of the key employee issues what I mean I know there's a lot of these different mistakes that you've uh, the the biggest mistake is I'll relay a quick story to you that yeah. I attended a seminar a couple of years ago where the head of Blackstone Acquisitions was talking and he put a question out to the audience that said, when are you going to sell your business? And the, you know, the, from the audience, one year, five years, he says, you're all wrong. You're <laughs> going to sell it when someone wants to buy it. <laughs> yeah. And so therefore, you always have to be ready for sale. And the biggest reason why deals fail in LOI is not being prepared for due diligence and not having, not being ready. So one of the things I also am a strong believer in is that once you are starting to think about this, spend your time, spend the time to build your due diligence library and then update it quarterly or semi-annually because a number of because a number of the deals that have failed that I've seen fail were due diligence ran long because they weren't prepared. The person who's responsible for the due diligence is usually the owner entrepreneur who is usually the principal rainmaker. And what happens when he's spending three to six months doing due diligence, he's not out there selling. And right. if he's not out there selling and due diligence runs three to six months, you blow your, he blows his projections because he's not getting the revenue figures, he says. And either at that point in time, the acquirer comes back and says, Hey guy, you haven't made projections. We want to haircut your purchase price. Mm -hmm. so, and therefore, and, and at that point, he's got a real problem. He either accepts it or he walks away knowing he spent a ton on transactional fees and knowing that he's put his, he has probably hurt the business significantly because employees don't like necessarily like to be in an insecure position and a company that fails on an acquisition uh, may lose employees at that point, and therefore it takes you a period of time to rebuild the business at post-acquisition. Yeah, yeah, I, I honestly could not agree with you more. 
you know, with our situation, it's, uh, and I want to dive into your due diligence thoughts, but you know, my little two cents is, you know, when all of a sudden you have to gather all this, my dad and I had the luxury of being able to kind of volley the leadership back and forth for our employees and the selling and gathering the data. But it is in a very intense amount of work because of the requirements and the, and the questions that are being asked of you. So I totally agree that having the ability to do that and not impact operations is huge. But then also the thing is, is your employees get wigged out. If it's not a normal operation to have that stuff, they're like, why do we need this information? All of a sudden, like, you know, for us, I got a you know, VP of sales who's got 15 employee, you know, 15 employees or, or salespeople reporting to them. And all of a sudden you're asking for the profitability, of your top contracts and like the diversity of the customers. And he's going, why are you doing that? <laughs> and so that alone is almost more scary as an owner than the actual time it takes to get the information well i, I think you've hit, you've hit the issue is that if when you're dealing with the quote employees not the guys who see beyond a paycheck acquisitions are scary mm -hmm. and therefore it's like you typically you see in an loi as an example well we want to talk to your key personnel and, and and my comment is, you only talk to, in my eyes, you will only talk to my key personnel and you will only talk to my customers once you've cleared every one of the other due diligence items. So only if there's a problem with my employee or a customer, are you walking away? Right. So um, I want to like your, let, let's dive into your due diligence thoughts because, and like what yeah. it consists of, because I think. You know, you've got a couple of the different uh, points in your book that talk about it, but you know, going through it, it, it you know, feels like a full colonoscopy. I mean, you're going down, yeah. man. It is like everything you could think of and more. So I don't know if you can, with a light brushstroke, kind of touch on the different kind of things that need to be ready. Sure. Uh, obviously, all of your corporate records. If you are a corporation do have you done all your annual minutes is the stock is your stock put read correctly i have seen more i've seen a lot of deals where uh the stock register isn't right and they've got stock that's supposedly been re redeemed that they don't have or there's a stockholder that's out there that they haven't talked to in 10 years and then he comes part of the acquisition and so your stock records, your corporate records. Um, I also believe you need to uh, do financial statement cleanup. There are certain things that, you know, if you look at your financials, there may be things that you can do to make your financials look better. Uh, I had one client who, may, who had a very unique way of recognizing revenue that when they got a purchase order, they recognize the revenue even though the amount purchased may not generate a profit. And by so and so what they would have is $15 million of sales and $6 million of bad debt write-off because they were recognizing the profit on the PO even though they hadn't actually was no guarantee. And so by changing that, we changed that and it made financing also easier in the future for them. But the idea of looking at your financial statements. Also, you know, 
planning is important. Doing you should be doing rolling two to three year projections out. And again, a lot of this stuff, once you do the corporate records once, it's not that difficult to do the annual up to know you need to do the annual update or if you only own one annual update. Mm -hmm. If you've been updating your if you have done the things, looked at your financials, are you presenting things right way? Do you have the right people in the right places? Well, and it's and it's the documentation too. But so like I think a lot, I think a lot of entrepreneurs in and you know coming from you know fighting the fight. I mean, I can relate totally. Where you're, you know, you, I think you actually in your book you called it the doo doo machine, where you're yeah. like you're doing things constantly. But you know, you know, I, I, when we sold a couple of our branches or we went through our deal, I mean, you can like a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners can answer all these questions. But it's like okay, then show me. So then it's like, oh, shit, we got to find our, our employment contracts, find and dig up our contracts with our customers, and then they may or may not be consistent. You know, where are all of these things? I think that is almost more challenging. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying by building a library. And it doesn't take once. You, you've hit the real issue is that most entrepreneurs spend 99% working in their business and 1% on their business. And the idea here is for some period of time for you need prior to deal, prior to IB, prior to setting price to have a secured computer where you've created a, a due, due diligence library where mm -hmm. all of the standard contracts are kept. And then on a quarterly or a semi-annual basis, you review that thing and say, oh, we got to put, we got a new contract type here. We need to get that in. Mm -hmm. And having that discipline will make the sale go a lot smoother because you just hit the other point, Ryan. Most of the things are in the entrepreneur's head, right? Mm -hmm. So if he's doing data dumps to the acquirer and his consultants, what is he not doing? He's not working on the business. So that's why doing the data dump prior to it so you can, yes, you're going to be tied up a percentage of the time in the acquisition anyway, but to the extent that you have done this planning, at least you can continue to run your business at a reasonable level during the acquisition process until you have to reveal it to the employees. Oh, it is it is crazy amounts of work. So like we were a office equipment distributor. So we repped Canon, Lexmark, Samsung, Dell, HP. So it was like reseller agreements, and those update. There was like different discounts and uh, and uh, cashbacks that we'd have with that. I mean, you have to like literally prove everything out. And uh, you know, depending on the buyer, the buyers are usually more sophisticated, so they know what they're asking for too. Well, and, and that's and you hit the other when you mentioned the the point is, if you start doing this now, before you're in acquisition mode, you say, hey, every quarter or every six months, I want you to update your particular section, Mr. Employee. They are not going to think it's out of the ordinary when you're in the in, in the due diligence mode. Mm hmm. 
because they, the, you know, this is part of the new procedures that we're putting in is that we want to standardize and we want to make sure everything's all the records are good. And this way you don't have to involve, you can keep the number of employees who know what's happening with regard to the acquisition down to a minimum. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is, and, that, and in my opinion, that's a key because rumors are not a good thing in acquisition mode. No, and time becomes your worst enemy. Exactly. Um, so I want to uh, jump into your mistake number 19, which I thought was really interesting um, because it, it's the financing options and, and what's available out there. So, you know, I've got a keynote presentation that I've done where it's, I think there's a lot of misperceptions. And so I, always, I, I say the statement that a lot of people think there's two options. One where they bring it to market and they get a big check and then they walk away. Or two, they have some long drawn out non-profitable family transition. <laughs> but there's a plethora of options in between. Can you kind of just give Well, some... let's put it this way. Every entrepreneur exits his business in one of six ways. He sells it to family. He sells it to management. Uh, he sells it to a third party, he becomes an absentee owner, it gets liquidated, or he dies. And if you don't choose one of the first four, the last two become the obvious choice. And within that framework, you know, you have to look at, you know, with management sales, the issue is, the biggest issue you have to look at is, and this is the first, one of the first questions I ask my clients in looking at when you talk about financing is, okay, Mr. Entrepreneur, if you were drop dead tomorrow, what's the, what, what kind of bank, what kind how, what is the ability for this company to get a get bank loans? Mm -hmm. And, oh, that good, huh? Well, don't you think that since in probably 70% of the acquisitions, you're going to take back paper from this company that you would like to improve your credit risk now? Hmm. Yep. So that again goes to the employee, the, how important employees are, is how do you improve your credit risk that you're going to get paid once you sell it? Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, some of the financing pieces on sale uh, depend on this one issue of one of the other chapters called the unemployable the un unemployable seller <laughs> because the fact is uh, earnouts and earnouts are a wonderful vehicle um, as long as you are capable of saying this is no longer your baby and someone else is raising your baby and you may not agree with their decisions but you have to sit there and say it's their baby now. Yep. Yep. And that so earnouts, um, and I think a key also in earnouts is they got to, I they have to be written in a way that it is clear, understandable, and relatively easy to calculate. I have seen some litigation over what you know what does the earnout mean and the and and how is it calculated. It needs to be extremely specific when you get into write, actual writing of the documents of how the earnout is going to be calculated. Well, and like making sure that if you're the seller, that you can control 
your numbers that that you're that the earnout is based on because I mean I've heard right. you know if, if if it's a profitability uh, earnout uh, based on net pro you know net profit or something where all of a sudden you know your quote unquote new boss decides to buy you know a bunch of new you know trucks and that hits your profitability and you no longer hit your earnout because they decided to do a capex at, you know at the end of the quarter well in fact I just had a one recently where. It was going to be a net, and we fought and won to change it to a gross profit because it was. We had a situation where we knew that the seller had wasn't going to be very happy, but the fact is they had not spent a lot on infrastructure in the last couple of years, and there was going to be a major hit to EBITDA, mm-hmm. and in this case. We it was important to keep this person happy, so we we wanted we went to a gross a gross profit to to avoid them taking as big a hit. In some cases, depending on you know how much you want to penalize, that that would be a case where you would probably lay out in advance saying, hey, you know you haven't bought computers for any of your staff in three years. That's that's a hundred thousand dollars that's going to go to EBITDA. You understand that it's going to hit your earnout number. Yep, and well, making sure that you know that that if you're going to do an earnout based on net, that there's either control or at least some understanding of what the G and A increase or decrease is going to be at that point. Well, and and you know, making sure just a little note on that too is to not. I've seen people where they play the games where they're not investing in their infrastructure, trying to increase their profits so that way they can get a bigger number on because it's a bigger multiplier or it's a, the multiplier has a bigger number because they've been profitable more. But then people look at that stuff and they say it's going to need this much, so they end up paying for it one way or the other. Well, you've also you also hit another issue that I think that is. S corporations are not the best vehicles for acquisitions for, for being sold in some ways, because the problem is if you have, if you get an LOI towards, you know, in the begin at the, at the end of the third quarter, and you're not going to close until after the first quarter, I've seen banks go through, go through absolute hysterics because the owner is doing all his tax planning because it's an S corp to minimize their income. They're looking at three quarter, three quarters are very profitable, and all of a sudden, fourth quarter, the numbers drop like a stone because the because he's doing tax planning, mm-hmm. and so that's another thing that people have to be concerned, at least consider, is that if you are going to sell in a period that's going to te- going to go over your year end, and you are an S or an LLC where you're doing tax planning, you have to consider what that may do to your Finding to the to the south to the acquirer's financing because they're looking at three quarters and all of a sudden they don't understand why your revenues dropped or your profitability has dropped dramatically mm-hmm. and you're doing it for tax planning and so that's another thing to consider is that you may have to not do as much tax planning in that year of sale. Well, and I, I, you've got you've kind of touched on this this term of tax planning. So I want to kind of get your two cents on. So I I find that there's a lot of misperceptions out there that tax planning 
is one bucket. You've got estate planning, which is one bucket, financial planning, which is one bucket, and then like your corporate structures is another bucket. And the reality is it's like one big Rubik's Cube, and that's you know some of the problems where we ran into that we could have had a lot more money net because we should have looked at it all holistically. And you know, tax planning while you're just doing the, the normal year end, like you had said, is way different than how like what your structure is, you know, and trust or in uh, estate planning is not just having a power of attorney and a trust, you know, that someone no. whipped up for ten grand. So like can you explain like how all of these impact like the net proceeds as Okay. Uh, well as I said, I think the first thing is that the entrepreneur needs to know what their net proceeds needs to be to achieve whatever their next step is. So that's financial planning comes in is how much do you need to, to, to do whatever you're going to do for the rest of your life or, uh, you know, um, also within that framework, is this your last set? Is this your last rodeo or are you going to potentially do another deal? Because if you're going to do another deal, part of tax planning in a sense is maybe using trusts, to take some of the chips off the table that if the next deal doesn't work, mm -hmm. you have protected them. Um, the idea of also estate planning is a significant issue potentially in family business scenarios because uh, some of the biggest fights I have ever seen in, in my practice have been where you have one or two children in the business and one and two children out of the business and daddy decides he's going to leave equal shares to the four to the four kids mm -hmm. and having non-work operating working children in a business and operating children they're make they they have completely different goals and i have seen families destroyed over that issue I look at, in, as part of your estate plan, you should be looking at that if you have family that is not in the business, how you're going to equalize the estate and keep the children out of the business, or how you're going to minimize that in a way that uh, is not going to harm the business. I mean, that's part of the estate planning. Within the estate planning also, though, is uh, with the higher exemptions and so on, estate planning from a tax perspective is less important in some ways of it's not what you leave your kids, it's how you leave it to your kids. And the idea is, as an example, that I'm working on, I'm working on a project now with a client and their biggest assets, they are, they are uh, own vineyards. So their biggest asset is the real estate, but the real estate doesn't generate cash for liquidity purposes for the state taxes. So the idea of trans doing transfers currently or over time into trust that will not be subject to tax again for a number of generations makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at you know what are the composition of the assets and how they play in. With regard to tax planning, on the sale, um, you also don't want the tax tail to wag the dog. And the, we may or may not have a tax bill this year. 
if we do have a tax bill this year, there may be certain cliffs that will come that could come in at a certain period of time. Setting artificial deadlines for taxes can hurt you in net proceeds because the acquirer knows you have that deadline, and if you have that deadline, they they have a lot more control over the over the transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I... you have to you have to you have to integrate the income tax, the long run income tax, short run income tax, the estate tax issues. What you're going to do afterwards, all are part of your financial plan is one. And obviously, your corporate structure is important because I'll give one other piece. In family transactions, if they are not service corps, probably the best and most efficient way to potentially do a buyout of the fam of, of, of the senior generation is through a corporate redemption and being a C corp. Because the first hundred thousand dollars of taxable income in a C corp is taxed at twenty-two thousand dollars, which is considerably less than taking a hundred thousand dollars out in excess of your normal income and then giving it to your dad, where you're paying forty percent on it. So the idea here is is also some tax planning with regard to so a lot of times in family deals. Son, second generation will buy a small portion of the stock, and then the corporation will redeem the stock at a more favorable uh, at a more favorable tax rate. Yeah, and I, and I think all I mean, there's so many different ways, like, and that's why I love the uh, the Rubik's cube analogy because depending yep. on what your goal is, you got to back into the from the goal because I've heard even. You know, horror stories. Actually, I was talking to this gentleman. He's a friend of mine. Down, He's got a firm similar to mine down in Texas. Works with a minimum of uh, net worth of $25 million families. And this family is worth like $400 million or some something like that. And they sold 60% of their – his uh, big, huge um, – they, they have a retail chain to a trust that – all these different tax things. But then all of a sudden – the, the company blew up, I guess, and like did really well. And he, the dad could not afford to pay the tax bill, even though his kids got rich because they were, they were the beneficiaries of this trust. Well, yeah, and, that's, and that's, that's another point that I'm going to make to you is that clients need to – that the choice of your business entity will affect the type of trust that you use mm-hmm. because grats, grats – the grant-to-retained interest trusts are okay for S-Corps and LLCs, uh, and the owner and be, and the, they work because what happens is you make the gift and you get the appreciation out, but the senior generation is paying the income taxes. But if you have a C-Corp that is only going to have, and, and the reason why that's important is that a trust reaches the top tax bracket at about $14,000 of ordinary income. So you do not want a lot of ordinary income running through an irrevocable trust. So flow-through entities don't work with irrevocable trust they need, unless they're grats or grats or other types of grant or retain interest trust where the grantor is willing to pay the taxes. On the other side of the coin is if you have a C-corporation, 
then why would you ever use a grant? You would because because it, a, 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 an irrevocable trust gets the fa same favorable capital gains treatment as an individual. So why would you want the grantor to pay taxes, capital gains taxes on the sales proceeds when that could be paid by the trust at the same rate? Yeah, it's just it's just one big huge jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> well, and here's here's another thing that I think people should also consider is. Um, in some cases, the entrepreneur is still supporting the parents, is now supporting the parents. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been using recently is setting up a chair, the selling, uh, making a contribution of to a charitable remainder trust for the benefit of parents to supplement their income and getting a significant charitable deduction to uh, reduce the tax liability in the year of sale. Yep. 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 I, I there, there's just so many in that's that, you know, this is a huge long technical rabbit hole that I know that you and I could probably volley back and forth for, for a long time. And I think, you know, the biggest takeaways, I mean, it is so intertwined and it all has to do with your goals, your timing. I mean, and even like you, I think you've alluded to it in your book where depending on whether you sell like of one of the six ways, each way that you're planning on exiting will determine all the, the ways that you back in technically from this. Um, so I think making sure that you understand the correlation between your exit options and goals versus all this technical stuff. Um, Ryan, let me add two quick points to what you just said. One is, while I said there's six ways to sell your business, the best way to sell your business is when you're an absentee owner. Mm -hmm. So you should be that every entrepreneur should be striving to be an absentee owner because that's when the business is most valuable because the one thing that's going to happen after the acquisition generally is the owner isn't going to be there. Yep. So striving to become an absentee owner. And the other thing that I raise is that you have to make sure that your professionals, the problem today with large firms is that large firms have become highly specialized. And with that high specialization, one of two things happen. Either uh, something, you either have five different partners who are going to learn, who are going to have to learn about your transaction to make sure it's all covered, or something's going to get missed. And that's why, <laughs> yep. and, and that's why it's really important to have someone who is going to be the quarterback and make sure that the right people are involved at the right time. Yep. And that that's where the 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 value add is is to make sure that you have the right people in and the right place and the right questions are being answered. Well, and that's, you know, I, I sat in that exact position, right, where we had uh, a CPA from a large firm in town with an attorney from a large firm in town and, you know, as an entrepreneur who was like, yeah, we know how to sell the hell out of IT services, you know, office equipment, all that stuff. You sit across from all these suits thinking that they should know all this stuff and you don't realize that your attorney isn't specialized in M&A, that they're actually specialized in employment law. <laughs> right, like exactly. And, and the thing is, or you're a small, you're, you, you've worked with the same attorney for 30 years and he's a great attorney, but he's not an M&A specialist. Oh, it's and, such a and, huge and, deal. And, and, if, and, if this, and if this is... This is the biggest sale in your life other than your real estate. 
you need to have someone who actually knows how these deals run. Well, and in knows how, and I uh, knows how they run. And the the interesting comment that I heard from uh, the gentleman Todd Ganos, who was on our show back in. In like January or so, he said it it impacts the continuing ed. So if you're a CPA that doesn't do M and A for a living, why would you stay up on all of the stuff that we talked about? Because it's not important. Because you've only right. done one in your entire life versus the person that's done you know ten this year. Right. Exactly. So uh, as we're kind of uh, running low on time here, I was just you know I, I, you hit on a huge thing because I was I, I was actually going to ask it to you and I think you already answered, which is. Striving to be the absentee owner, you know, if if most entrepreneurs are in the you know the doo doo machine where they're doing doing doing, how which is ninety percent of the time, and they're only working on the business one percent of the time. Striving to be the absentee owner should be their goal, right? So and yep, and and there are two re- there. Let me say there are a couple. Of, there first off is is this: if you don't do that, you become the biggest backup in the business. Mm-hmm. And if you are the biggest backup in the business, what ends up happening? Those that are entrepreneurial, if if you have to, if the entrepreneur has to make every decision, you're gonna you're going to alienate those people in your management team who have entrepreneurial spirit because they're going to figure they can't do they can't make any decisions, and all you're going to end up with yet then you're all you're going to end up with is yes men in management, and therefore when you're if you're not there, the business falls apart. Well, yeah, and I think it's like the best like gift on earth, which is your sole goal is to work yourself out of a job, and exactly, your, and your company's worth more because you did it. <laughs> exactly, and that's uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Snowball by Warren Buffett. Uh, yes. So, I mean, that's what Warren does. That's what Berkshire Hathaway is. Right? He goes in there, he understands it, and then he delegates until all he has to do is read the financials. Yep. So agreed. Um, as we're, you know, I don't know if there's anything we haven't covered that you, you want to make sure that, you know, we reiterate or one thing you want to highlight before we kind of wrap up. Uh, I think the, the reiteration is this needs to be planned. You can't, you are, if, if you wait and just say, okay, and then someone comes to you with an LOI, you're going to get the you're going to get a lot less proceeds. And as I analogize in one of the statements I make to clients is until you get the LOI, you are like the prom queen and everyone wants to date you. (laughs) The minute you sign the LOI, the shoe is on the other foot and the acquirer will do everything they can to potentially reduce the price. And so you need to make sure that when you do the LOI, that you've got someone. If I see a two-page LOI, I'm concerned. (laughs) An LOI needs to specify. And, and, And also another point within that specification, I'm a big believer that if you have a formula that's been used to calculate the, quote, purchase price, that you use the formula in the LOI. This way, in case there is something that hiccups in due diligence regarding revenue, the deal doesn't, you don't get into a fight at that point over what the new number is. Mm-hmm. Is that to the extent you can be as specific as you can build things that have flexibility with regard to where the deal can fall apart in the LOI, 
you prevent you have a more a larger chance of closing taking the LOI to closing if it's built as a flexible document but detailed. I great advice. Absolutely love it. Um, so, Stuart, what is the best way our listeners can get in touch with you? Well, they they can contact me through my website, which is stewartsorkin.com, or they can reach me by email at ssorkin at shspc.com. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure.